is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We all know by now about those racist comments that has plunged L.A. City Hall into crisis. Even two mayor candidates, Karen Bass and Rick Caruso, have condemned uh, those remarks. But, you know, they both seem to be somewhat disconnected right now from what's going on in the city council. So we are going to go in-depth to try to find out why. There's a new poll, by the way. It shows people are worried about the future of democracy in the United States, but not enough, apparently, to want to do much about it. And researchers are looking into a currently available drug. Why? Because it might help people with long COVID. President Biden trying to rally voters by promising action on abortion rights after the midterm elections. We go in-depth into whether his plan will actually work because Democrats might be losing momentum heading to Election Day. Republicans could win some races once thought to be safe for Democrats. And Michael Cohen, the former attorney for Donald Trump, is out with a new book detailing how the former president used the Justice Department to target people he didn't like. We're going to talk to Cohen about his experiences in dealing with Mr. Trump. You know, we had... Uh... Conan once before on in depth, and it was interesting. Besides him just being interesting, we did the interview with. Uh, he was at the time under house arrest in his uh, apartment in Manhattan, so it was probably the first time we actually interviewed somebody who was under in, house arrest in custody. Yeah, yeah. So we did have a, a captive uh, audience and interviewee, <laughs> a captive guest, and captive guest. We start though with L.A. Uh, with the L.A. mayor's race. And uh, those racist remarks that have consumed the city council, actually it's consumed the whole city, let's face it. Bill Carrick is a longtime Democratic political strategist here in Los Angeles. Bill, thanks for being with us. Um, Certainly early on, there were uh, reactions from Karen Bass and from Rick Caruso. It it does seem as if, and maybe that's just a a wrong perception that some of us have, it does seem that they, they are somewhat disengaged from what is going on now at city council. If that's the case, is that, do you think, deliberate? No, I don't think it's really deliberate. I think there are two, there are two things that are really causing it. One is the dominant issues throughout this mayor's race have been homelessness and crime. So they've been talking about homelessness and crime, as you guys know very well, uh, every day and and setting different settings. You know, today we had uh, uh, Steve Lopez's column with Rick Crusoe. We've had that going. So they're in that rhythm of talking about homelessness and crime every day. And then the second thing I say is, Neither one of them are currently City Hall players. They're both, Rick had some appointments in the past, but not for a number of years. Karen has never been a City Hall player. So they don't really have any standing in this officially. So it's difficult for them to get a hold of it. And the third thing is, it's been a big news story and everybody's covering it and it's all, and it's, it's dramatic. And we got the protesters who were, somewhat legitimately very angry that the council is not meeting and then the council is trying to figure out what to do and they have to elect a new uh, president of the city council. Then there's a lot going on and it's very confusing, very confusing. And it's we thought we had a pretty stable mayor's race. Now it's all over the place because of this issue. Is it fair to say that uh, this whole racist scandal has kind of sucked the air out of the campaign for mayor? 
Yeah, I think it is fair to say that. And I think it is because it is a very, very profound issue. And it's making all of us kind of, re, uh, you know, reexamine uh, what what's the, what is our community? How do we get along? Where's where's all this tension from? And of course, one of the things that's going on, we have one of the most diverse communities in America. And so if you're whether you're African-American or whether you're Latino or Asian or Anglo or LGBTQ, whatever your world is that you you start from, you have to build coalitions with other people to be successful. And I think that that has really stunned people that we thought our community got along pretty well with each other. And it and then behind the curtain, we had this. All right. I, I want to get back to the mayoral race for a minute here. Um, do you think that what is going on in City Hall impacts one candidate over the other? In other words, it, does Karen Bass and or Rick Caruso benefit or not from what's happening in City Hall? Uh, okay, I'll take the chicken way out. I'll, I think... Oh, no, no, no. No chicken way out. Uh... <laughs> All right. I'll give you an explanation. Crusoe is an outsider, right? He's not an elected official. This is his first time running for office. So he's he's gets to play the role of outside observer, reformer, I'm going to fix this. Karen, on the other hand, is a veteran, a, a member of Congress and the former Speaker of the Assembly. She's, she, but she's not been in City Hall, but she she's a, has a great reputation as a really decent person and an effective um, leader. So they, they both, there's, there's qualities about both of them that suggest that they may be at least a partial solution to the, this problem. Okay, so you so you so you still, par- you partly check it out. Yeah, but okay. Still, partial <laughs> chicken there. Yeah. Partial chicken. <laughs> okay. Thank you very fair, much. Fair enough. That's uh, Bill Kerrick, longtime Democratic <laughs> political strategist here in LA. And and clearly a, a diplomat. Right now, though, a new New York Times poll finds voters across the country believe democracy in the United States is being threatened. But it suggests that many just don't seem to think it's the country's most important problem. More than a third of independent voters and a smaller number of Democrats say that they are open to supporting candidates who reject the outcome of the 2020 election. In other words, they don't believe it was valid. Dan McMillan is founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. Dan, thanks for being with us. Well, uh, interesting title for the group, Save Democracy in America. It sounds like there's a lot to save, but are Americans interested indeed, in doing it? Indeed there that? is, and thank you so much for having me. But now the question is, are Americans interested in saving it? Because that poll that just came out in today's New York Times is not very encouraging. Well, I, I think that the poll is, well... I think Americans are very interested in saving our democracy, and they're deeply concerned um, because the American people weren't born yesterday. Our democracy is in grave trouble. Indeed, in my view, it's been on life support for decades now because of the role of money in politics, which is our particular focus at Save Democracy in America. As far as the level of the vote, but the thing is, as far as the level of concern, you got to remember that no candidate of either party is offering a concrete solution, you know, in any path to reducing this divisiveness. To no, I get, I get that, Dan, but, 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 but let me interrupt, because the, the numbers that, that I find the most interesting in that poll was, uh, and I believe it was something like, I think it was 71% of those polls. So that would be 
Democrats, Republicans, independents thought that democracy was uh, in danger. But only, I think it was 7% thought that it was a high priority, that there were more pressing issues to deal with. I presume they mean things like the economy. But, I think so, yeah. You know, but if only 7% of Americans polled think that it's a worthy fight to, once again, sort of coining the, the uh, recoining the name of your group to save democracy in America, that's not very good. Well, it, it is not very good. And yet, I think that that will change very dramatically once the American people start learning about a concrete way to do it. I mean, you know, ultimately, how can you get so excited about some a problem when no one is offering a solution to it? No one is that, you know, who's running for office. Also, that 7% number is down. The numbers were a lot higher in polls as early as only a month ago. There was an NBC poll uh, on September 18th where 20% of voters said it was their top concern. And I think an additional 7% said it was their second concern. And that was down from August where the concern for democracy was higher still. But I think as we get closer to election day, and the airwaves are flooded with campaign ads where the candidates are talking only about either inflation or abortion, the issues that they think are going to bring them advantage, depending on which party they are, then naturally, you know, voters come to sort of rank those issues more highly on their agenda. But I think that these voters, I think Americans are obviously very deeply concerned and, and frightened, really, for the state of our country, and as they should be. But no one's no one's showing them, a, you know, a possible fix to the problem, which is kind of where we come in and in my organization. I think they're although, you know, the, the saying goes that uh, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme from time to time. If we go back into history and look at uh, uh, to bring up the, the analogy again of what was happening in Germany in the late 20s mm -hmm. and early 30s. Well, you know, they, they had uh, flirted with this form of a republic that they had. But at the same time, there was a worldwide economic crisis and uh, Europe and America and the rest of the countries around the world were just collapsing economically. So people mm -hmm. looked at democracy in Germany as like, well, this is not working. And I wonder how much of that is like, yeah, people are concerned about democracy, but perhaps part of the concern is that there is a feeling among some, and some openly say it in America, that uh, democracy is just not not the way to go. It's not working. We need something better. We need a strong man, authoritarian, to kind of run things and not have to get sidetracked by bureaucrats and red tape. Well, it's you know it's interesting that you you make the Germany analogy. I don't know if you know that 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 I was an ex, I was a, a professor of German history in my first career, and I published a book on the causes of the Holocaust in 2014. I think a difference between now and then, however, is that in Germany, the democratic form of government was established relatively late and never really had a chance to establish its legitimacy. In our country, the democratic form of government is central to our identity because we're the only country on earth that really stands for something. Our nationhood is defined by ideals, you know, by individual liberty, equality of opportunity, governed by the people. And I think that the, the, the desire uh, for the, you know, democracy, for governed by the people among the American people is very, very strong. Um, this talk about, you know, democracy doesn't work, we need a strong man. I find you hear that more from elite commentators than than from you know, the rank and file voters. That's my perception. All right, and 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 perhaps that, that that's correct. But I but I think rather than than sort of do the the uh, U.S. you know Nazi Germany uh, analogy, I, I think that the the problem, 
and the New York Times poll puts its finger on it, is you said earlier that the problem why most Americans don't seem to be that engaged with this issue is because no one has provided them with the solution. And the problem, as the poll points out, is that's because different people have a different definition of what the problem is. Uh, Both Republicans, for example, and Democrats believe, they say, in democracy. The only problem is Republicans, according to that poll, they blame the Democrats and Joe Biden for ruining democracy. Mm -hmm. And Republicans and uh, and Democrats, in turn, blame Donald Trump and MAGA people for ruining democracy. So if they can't even agree on the problem, how do you have a solution? Well, but again, you know, that is that is a polarization that's fed by politicians for because of the perverted incentives of the system, we argue that the source of of most of our problems is big money in politics. It's simply the fact that you cannot run for office without raising obscene amounts of money, which means you are drastically limited in what policy options you can propose, which is why we're not really solving any of the many problems we have in this country, whether it's healthcare, infrastructure, better schools, you name it. And the money also stokes the divisiveness because money has stayed on top throughout our history through a process of divide and conquer. And more and more, as the parties need to raise more and more money and the cost of the federal elections doubled between 2016 and 2020, uh, the less and less they're able to offer us in the way of a positive message. And so both parties have defaulted to negative messaging about the other side, because that's the only way they keep their own voters in line. Um, I think that the money problem also contributes to partisan anger because no one in politics is helping Americans understand that it's money more than anything else that, that robbed them of their voice in government. And not knowing who their enemy is, they turn their anger and suspicion on each other. But I think if we could elevate the money problem, if Americans can understand the centrality of money and how much damage it has done to us and start and, you know, working on a solution, which, in fact, there is a particular approach that, that we advocate for. That's our mission, the democracy dollars reform. I think you'll see the temperature, the partisan temperature kind of sinking back down and right. people feel more hopeful. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Dan McMillan, founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. A little bit later, we're going to sit down and talk with Michael Cohn. Remember him? He uh, was Donald Trump's uh, personal attorney. He got into a lot of legal hot water because of it. He has a new book out called Revenge. Right now, research is looking into long COVID may have found a drug that can help. Naltrexone, hope I pronounced that right, is a generic drug typically used to treat alcohol and opioid addiction. It might help people who suffer from things like brain fog and fatigue. With us now is Dr. Zach Porterfield, a virologist at the University of Kentucky. He co-chairs a task force looking into long COVID. So this is kind of interesting. So a, a drug that treats addiction is helping with long COVID. What specifically does the drug help treat? So it's a really excellent question. And, and we know that medications can have complex effects on, on people. So sometimes at certain doses, they may have one effect and at other doses, they may have another. And what we're seeing is that um, naltrexone, which can be used for opiate and alcohol addiction at a high dose, at a very low dose, seems to have a, a, a very interesting effect in some conditions, one of which is is long COVID. Um, there are researchers around the country and in other countries that are looking at using this treatment to treat fatigue and brain fog and some of the things that are also being associated uh, with this long COVID uh, phenomenon. 
Yeah, I, and I, I want to go a little bit deeper into that uh, and and sort of extend Rob's question here because long COVID and and, and I think you would agree is not so much a, a disease per se as it is a syndrome, right? I mean, it, there are all kinds of different things that doctors are now finding that are being put under that umbrella long COVID, uh, respiratory issues, cognitive issues, neurological issues. I, so I, I guess I'm a little amazed that any one drug could seem to mitigate the effect of so many different kinds of maladies. And I think that's a really critical point. We're seeing uh, lots of different things that are associated with, you know, people who've recovered from COVID at different levels of severity. And I think that there are probably multiple different things that can happen to a person after they recover. Some of them are very physical. You can get lung damage from COVID and that persists as sort of long-term shortness of breath and, and cough. And some of these other things may be a very different phenotype as we refer to it. So things like brain fog and fatigue, um, maybe a different effect of the of the uh, the virus and, and the recovery from the virus. So uh, low dose naltrexone is mostly being used to treat those energy, brain fog, forgetfulness type phenotypes, and less sort of a panacea for everything. So we're talking about uh, the brain here. We're talking about neurology. So is is the idea that this drug helps treat those brain fog? conditions. Does that tell us something about long COVID? Maybe help us discover something else about the syndrome itself? I think it certainly could. And, and one caveat here, uh, you know, is that we have to, most of the the um, data is still emerging. So the trials that have shown some effect have, re- have been relatively small uh, in size. And so a lot of research still needs to be done. And I think to even step back uh, one step further from that is that the phenomenon of long COVID itself hasn't been firmly described. This is a, a brand new thing. And so one of the initiatives that I'm a part of is the Recover Initiative, which is really trying to define what is and isn't related to COVID. So first we have to understand the the symptoms that people have afterwards and which ones are definitely related to the virus and which ones aren't, and then sort of divide it down into, you know, are there treatments that may help with one or some of those symptoms? And so we're still on the early side of things, but I, you know, if, if we look at the early evidence, um, it would suggest that there's maybe an anti-inflammatory process of naltrexone uh, at a very low dose that may be uh, part of the benefit here. So where does this leave uh, the listener, and I'm sure we have many, who have long COVID, or maybe they think they do, but where does it leave them now? Not, you know, years from now, not when all the studies come in. Where does it leave them now? Absolutely. And I think one of the, the critical messages is that, you know, this is an evolving thing. And so, no, we don't have an answer. And, and anybody who purports to tell you that there's a definite answer and a definite cure, I don't think is being, you know, fully transparent. Um, I, I recommend that in these situations, trying to find opportunities to volunteer for research studies is really important, that the benefit of having being involved in a research study on something like low-dose low naltrexone or other uh, treatments is that you get much closer follow-up. We get a better understanding of your response to the medication. Um, there's an increased safety profile. And so it's a way to say, you know, we may be able to offer some significant benefit and then some societal benefit for understanding how this works. Um, but I would say, you know, talk to your physician, your independent physician, and, and see if this might be a good option for you, understanding that the risks and benefits aren't yet fully um, evaluated. But certainly if there's opportunities to participate in research studies uh, with, you know, local universities, uh, I think that's a, a huge uh, advantage and a step forward for all of us. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Zach Porterfield, virologist at the University of Kentucky. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden made a pretty big promise when it comes to abortion rights. He said today if Democrats elect more senators and keep control of the House in the midterms, he would make abortion a top issue and sign a law that would make it legal across the country. Yeah, well, the president is trying to rally voters to side with Democrats in three weeks during the midterms, even if the president though gets his way. Is it realistic that Congress is going to do this, legalize abortion? Tracy Pearson is an attorney and cultural and political analyst. Tracy, thanks for being with us. I mean, here's the problem with what the president said. Um, Yeah, if more Democrats are elected, it makes it easier. But in order for something like this, a, a bill to get through Congress, both houses of Congress, to become law, the Senate would have to do away with its current filibuster rules, which, as I'm sure you know, uh, the president is having problems in his own party, Democrats, to be aligned with it. Two in particular have said over and over they will not uh, vote to change the filibuster rules. So it kind of sounds like the sort of thing that a president understandably might say to get voters to the polls. But is it a promise he realistically can keep? Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you again. I, I, I don't think it's a promise. I think it's him asking for voters to turn out because it is realistic. Uh, they need about 52 senators or more to take control to be able to govern. And looking at the polling over time, and that's really important to understand when it comes to midterms. You have to look at it over time. You can't look at, on it, at it on a day-to-day basis. Uh, the picture is looking much rosier for the Democrats. Uh, they are looking at about a 64% chance of being able to control the Senate, and that's critical. Uh, it's important for Democratic voters to understand that they need to make uh, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin irrelevant because they're holding the rest of the Democratic Party hostage. But the question, I think, is is more that is it realistic that you're going to elect enough? Let's say let's say there is a, a, a blue wave that uh, happens and surprises all the pollsters and we elect a lot of Democrats. So are there enough Democrats that can be elected to overcome a filibuster and get such a bill through uh, through the Senate part? Uh, not even talking about the House at this point. I think it is something that can happen. I think that what we've determined is that when Democrats show up, they are able to to pass the things that they need to pass and they're able to elect people. We've seen that in the past. One of the things that's troubling right now when it comes to polling is, well, two issues. The first is that the Dobbs decision has really thrown a wrench in our understanding of what may happen here. Uh, the, tr- the predictions are based on historical uh, uh, records and the Dobbs decision really impacted um, our ability to predict what may happen here. Uh, Voter registrations have increased exponentially across the board in states where we see that there are abortion bans or near total bans uh, among, and particularly it's among women voters. Uh, Additionally, in many of these states where it's looking now more like toss-ups, and I know that that sounds a little bit like a cop out to some of the pollsters out there and some of the analysts. And I agree to some some respect. But look, it's looking like a toss up that uh, that these polls are not independent polls. So it makes it much harder to rely on them, particularly when it comes to the House races. OK, so uh, although it's interesting and we're going to talk about it more in our next segment, but there are other polls, which I'm sure you've seen 
that indicate the opposite, that, that rather than things looking more rosy for Democrats, things might not be looking so rosy for Democrats, that because the economy has reemerged, as if it ever went away, as a major issue in the minds of voters, and voters are tending to blame the party in power, the Democrats, for the economy, that actually Republicans might emerge from the midterms in a better position than even the pollsters once thought. That's not accurate. I don't agree with you. You don't have to agree with me. It's not me. (laughs) Well, I I, I don't agree. I understand, but it depends on what poll you're looking at, right? And so I've looked at information that suggests that abortion is a driving issue, and we know it's a driving issue. Uh, We know that statistically based on a range of sources of data. And so when it comes to, uh, to the issues that are important to voters, what you have to understand is that you're looking at around 83% of, of, of uh, voters are in states where there are full abortion bans, and over half the country wants to see abortion access protected. And so logically, it's going to drive uh, voting, and it is driving voting because we're seeing in these states, these really critical races like Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, all of these states, uh, that there are massive numbers of women voters registering. Thanks so much uh, to Tracy Pearson, attorney and cultural and political analyst. The midterm elections, just a few weeks away, but some Democratic political strategists, they are losing hope of holding on to the House. The optimism was much higher this summer as public sentiment seemed to favor Democrats, especially after Roe v. Wade was overturned. But that is not the case right now. High gas prices, inflation still a problem. Republicans are even thinking about winning a Senate seat in Colorado, which has leaned toward Democrats lately. GOP could even win the governor's seat in Oregon, which is typically very blue. Don Hader Markels, the political science chair at the University of Kansas, he specializes in the dynamics between public opinion, political behavior, and public policy Thank you so much for joining us. You know, predicting the outcome of elections uh, sometimes is very easy, and then sometimes it's very tricky. Uh, I know that uh, going back to 2016, you had one of the leading lights on the uh, far left. You had Michael Moore, who was uh, going against the grain by saying that, no, Hillary Clinton is going to lose to Donald Trump, and he turned out to be right. Uh, Now, Michael Moore is saying, no, all the pollsters are wrong again, and the Democrats are going to have a huge blue wave. But... You know, as we look at some of the polling results, I mean, not just one poll and not just two polls, but a lot of them are showing that, you know, momentum for Democrats is slowing down now and the Republicans are looking a lot better heading into the midterms. Uh, How do we how do we how are we supposed to read all this conflicting information? (laughs) Well, it is all conflicting information, but it's nice to be aware that historically the president's party always loses seats in the midterm election. Those seats are usually in the House, but sometimes in the Senate, too. They're. Two exceptions to that, that's 1998 and 2002, um, where where the president's party didn't lose seats. In fact, they gained seats. Um, I don't see that this year stands out as, a, as an exception um, to the rule. In other words, we would expect the president's party to lose seats in the House, and they don't need to lose that many in order to uh, flip control to the Republicans. The Senate's a little bit more difficult, um, but it's certainly true that, that the trend was more positive for Democrats um, earlier in the summer and even into early September. Um, But at this point, I think all the Democrats can really do is hope they can largely avoid a bloodbath.
Well, our previous guest, I don't know if you happen to hear her, uh, she was hopeful, is hopeful, that uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade is energizing women. And she was pointing out that uh, more women are registering to vote in many of the states that now have uh, basically anti-abortion laws in effect. Do you not buy that as as a uh, an effective argument? Are, are the figures that you're looking at or what you're seeing in terms of trends not supportive of that notion? I think it's certainly true that, especially in some states, um, abortion really did motivate people to register to vote and get out to vote. I mean, we saw that here in Kansas, where we had basically record high registration during a midterm election and um, amazing turnout for uh, not just a midterm election, but a primary, uh, which really typically tends to be a low key affair. And ours, other than the abortion issue, um, was pretty low key because the uh, the main races were were not contested for the nomination um, seriously. So I think that's a possibility. And one thing that we've said since August is, can this be maintained? In other words, those folks who registered to vote for the first time, especially younger voters that turned out, younger women that turned out to vote, um, will they vote, come back and vote in November? And that's just the part that's unclear now. I think it's correct to, to assume that the that the wave is was favoring um, Democrats post-Dobbs, um, but it's also true that some of those people may end up deciding to stay home, um, and that could easily be the difference. Republicans seem a little bit more energized than they were in the summer. But, you know, honestly, for many Americans, they don't really start paying attention to the midterm election until about this time, until we get into October. Um, so it's really those people and those people turning out to vote that will decide. Uh, I think, again, the winds blow against Democrats, um, but there certainly will be some surprises. So it, it kind of feels like you're saying that uh, attention spans are too short, that uh, we had the issue of abortion, which galvanized a lot of voters uh, to register, to uh, activate, to get active. And now that issue is kind of faded back into the background because, you know, our news cycles run so fast. Is is that really all that's happening here? I think that's part of what's happening and part of the reason the Democrats want to really hammer home on abortion with Biden's speech today and um Lots of candidates running ads focused on it in particular. But I think you can even look to the Utah um, Senate race to see that this is sort of an unusual unusual year in terms of um, Republicans may not be as strong as they would have otherwise been. In other words, um, in many states, um, the Republican candidates who are, are denier, election deniers and things like that, may not ha have quite as much support as they would have otherwise. So in some ways, the Republicans hurt their chance at a big red wave. And now it's really just to see where it, where it kind of lands. All right. Thank you so much. That is um, Don Hader Markell, political science chair at the University of Kansas. Thanks for joining us. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Michael Cohen spent years as the attorney to former President Donald Trump. He knows what it's like to be in the spotlight because of Mr. Trump and to also be out of it because of him, too. Yeah, Michael Cohen went to a federal prison for tax evasion, campaign finance violations. He's a free man now. He's telling us uh, exactly who Donald Trump really is and what he's capable of. In a new book, it's called Revenge. 
how Donald Trump weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice against his critics. Michael, thanks for being back with us. The last, It's been months, maybe longer than that, since you were with us the last time. So first of all, how the hell is life treating you? Oh, Rob and Charles, I've had um, some better days. I certainly have had some worse days. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you were introducing me, I really want to be clear. The book Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics, what it does is it dissects the most corrupt investigation into a United States citizen in American history. The interesting thing is you brought up the reasons why I ended up at Otisville, a federal, you know, federal correctional institution called Otisville. Um, and some of those charges were tax evasion. Another one was misrepresentation to a bank. Those are all lies. And I spell that out in the book. And the reason why it's so important is because it demonstrates using my case as the example, what happens when an autocratic, fascist-minded president elects to weaponize the DOJ to silence a critic. I never tax evaded in my entire life. In fact, I've never been audited in my entire life. I've never not paid taxes. I've never even requested in my entire life an extension. While they said I didn't pay $1.39 million over those years, I paid $5 million. And the scary part is not only did the prosecutors know this, but so did the judge and everyone else. Even in the Petrillo sentencing memo, which I provided going back uh, prior to receiving the three years from Judge William H. Pauley III. But, you know, one of the things that I also hope to get out of this book is that the book creates a call to action on two fronts. First, it's really the desperate need to overhaul the entire judicial system. And we're beginning to see that right now. And we can talk about that after with what Damian Williams, our um, attorney, uh, from the USAO's office here at the Southern District of New York, but came Michael, out with but yesterday. Michael, but, but, but hold it for a second, because you're going to jump ahead, uh, and, and we'll get to that. But I, I am curious, though, uh, and I think listeners would, because in, in looking at, for example, the, the table of com, uh, uh, contents, so you have a chapter, of course, called Democracy in Peril. Now, some people might pick that up and think, okay, the guy's talking about Donald Trump. But you're really talking, based on what you said before, uh, when you first uh, were introduced, you're talking about a threat to democracy that's twofold, right? I mean, you're talking about, you are talking about Donald Trump, but you're talking about what happens when somebody like Donald Trump has his or perhaps her hands on the instrument of government and uh, investigations. Is that right? That's exactly correct. You know, uh, the way I start off that chapter is that I'm not the first person to call out the actions of the Department of Justice for being antithetical to the ideals of this country, nor will I be the last. I say, nor will I be the last, because the second part to what I was trying to say is I really want this book to help to hold accountable those who violate their obligations, whether it's prosecutors, judges, attorney generals, or even the president of the United States, because to do anything less will result in the destruction of our democracy. So what do you make of the current uh, Justice Department, Mr. Mary Garland, who's the attorney general? And what do you make of the current investigations from the Department of Justice and uh, other states attorneys uh, looking into Donald Trump? Uh, how do you feel about those investigations? Well, 
You know, when Merrick Garland was first chosen by Joe Biden to be the attorney general, I had tremendous hope that we were going to see not a Bill Barr, who I find to be a despicable and a disgraceful human being, but but somebody more measured, but somebody who I was desperate to find action. And one of the things I think everybody is saying, and at least that they're feeling, is that while he may be methodical, and he certainly is uh, pensive in how he goes about handling all of the various different legal matters that are now being presented to the attorney general uh, by various different committees and, uh, and states and so on, he's so slow that Trump's tactic of delay, 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 working. And now that we're coming up to the midterms, nobody wants to follow themselves so that nobody on either side can say, hey, this was affected as a result of the Department of Justice's actions. And that's what caused the change in whatever the result may be for the midterm election. Hey, Michael, you might be moving a little bit in and out of your microphone because every now and then we're kind of losing. We're, we're hearing what you're saying, but every now and then you're fading a bit. So I don't know if oh, you're... Oh, my, my, my apologies. No, no, apologies. Uh, but, 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 but you may be, like I said, maybe you're distancing yourself every now and then from the, the, the mic. But uh, you, you said earlier uh, that you wanted to sort of give, I guess, a prescription, uh, my word, perhaps not yours, about what, Americans ought to do to counter this weaponization of, of the uh, Justice Department. But I can hear people out there thinking, what do you want me to do about it? You know, I'm just an average citizen. I'm just worried about, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work, having enough money to pay my bills. What am I supposed to do to counter this? What's your answer to that? Vote. Make sure that not only you get out for these November midterm elections, but that you grab two, three, four, five people, grab everyone that you know, because if we don't stop this, and I mean stop this now, the democracy that we all grew up with will be lost. And I understand people's apprehension and the fact that, hey, I'm only one person, what can I do? It starts with one person, very much like the old adage, right? The road to the mile starts with the first foot. Each and every one of your listeners has to be that first foot. And you have to grab individuals and take them with you or make a plan for all of you to end up going to the, you know, to the voting booth. Because if not, we're going to get the same ridiculous individuals that are running right now, we're watching as people like Herschel Walker, a man who was an absolutely fantastic football player, but there's something significantly wrong with him. He is, he's not even wanted by his own party. They just want to take the seat so that they could flip the Senate. You know, Michael, I, I, I knew uh, Donald Trump years ago. I used to cover him in, in New York. This was the uh, late 80s up until about 1990 and, and the Atlantic City issues that he had at the time. And I've pondered this question since. And, and you were closer to him and certainly knew him better than I ever did. So I'm going to throw the question to you. What is it about him, Trump, that... You know, a lot of people, if they either loathe the guy and think he's the biggest menace uh, ever to American democracy, 
Or, as you know, there are people, many, millions of Americans who love the guy, who think that, that he's, you know, practically uh, the next messiah. What does he have? What's his, what's his trick, for lack of a better word? Yeah, you know, many people would say that he has the personality of like a Svengali or a cult leader. What he does is he manages to, and he's very good at reading people. And one of the things that he'll do is he'll find, I guess it's your your weakness. Is it something that you're looking for, whether it be money, power, notoriety, meaning fame? And what, he's do, what he does is he's capable of figuring out how to play on your worst desires. It's almost like the devil. Right. He plays to your worst desires. Think about the millions of people that are still Donald Trump's supporters, despite everything that we know about him, despite everything that we know that he has done, despite all of the illegal um, matters that have now been uh, brought to the courts and have been brought to these various different committees. And yet they still are willing to go out there and to fight for him. And when I say fight for him, many of these people are now in jail themselves as a direct result. What he did in those specific cases, like to the Oath Keepers, um, he played to their racist, their innate racist tendency, their need to have white uh, privilege remain. And so... When he makes statements about, I will not denounce David Duke, I don't even know David Duke. Or he talks about when it took, when the action, that, um, that incident took place in Charlottesville, where he said that there are good people on both sides. What he does is he sends out, like a gangster, like a mobster, a mob boss, he sends out this sort of latent comment, and you're able to digest it and interpret it the way that you want. And if, in fact, that you are a member of, for example, one of these white supremacist uh, groups, then you're going to take that to mean something somewhat different than maybe you, Rob, or you, Charles, um, you know, understand that comment to be. And that's what he does. He doesn't speak straight. He speaks in code. So let me ask you, is you talk about this appeal, how he appeals to these parts of you. Is that what he did with you? Because, you know, at one point uh, you're very much of a you play your cards close to the vest and it's hard to tell what you really think. Uh, I'm just I'm being sarcastic because you're a pit bull and you were a pit bull for Donald Trump at one point. Is that what he did to you? What dark part of you did he appeal to that made you such a defender of Trump back then? Okay, so there's two parts to this answer. The first part is the Donald Trump that we are all seeing today is hands down the worst version of Donald Trump ever imaginable. When I worked for him, I was working as an attorney. Yes, I was an executive vice president and special counsel to just Donald himself in a family, small real estate development company. What was my thing? What was going on in my life that was lacking? And I talked about this in my in my book as well. I had just come off of a near death experience where in 2015 
I had blown a series of pulmonary embolists at the age of 39, and it was touch and go for several days whether I would survive. By nature, I happened to be a deal junkie. I didn't go to work for Donald because I wanted money. I needed money. I was fully retired at the age of 39, despite the fact I was still a partner at a very prestigious white shoe um, law firm called Phillips Neiser when he asked me to come to work for him. I had been in my home at that point, you know, with the pulmonary embolus, my lungs had shut down. I was in very bad shape. And the fact that Donald Trump, a guy whose book I had read not once but twice, The Art of the Deal, going back to 1989 when I was still in, um, you know, in school. For me, it was a very um, appealing position. I also enjoyed the amount of responsibility that he had provided to me. I was co-president of Trump Productions. I was one of the only three board members. It was Donald, Alan Weiss, and but, myself but, but, in Michael, this universe. But I'm interrupt you and I was involved in all, all right. sorts of big deals. But I'm curious, and this may be a, a weird question. And by the way, let me just also mention very quickly an editorial note, nothing to do with you, Michael, uh, but all a lot to do with L.A. By unanimous vote, uh, vote Paul Kikurian was voted in as the new Los Angeles City Council president. We're going to have a lot more about that at 2.30. Michael, back to you. Um, did you ever like Donald Trump? And that may be a weird question, but I am curious about it. Did you ever, looking back on it, was there ever a time when you liked the guy? Yes. Uh, despite the fact that my wife, my daughter, and my son were so angry at me, it was the first time that the three of them never spoke to me in unison. <laughs> you know, they did not want me to take the job. They did not like him. They did not want me to work for him. Many times during my decade employed, they had begged me. I mean, you know, beseeched me to leave. I didn't need it. It was incredibly difficult. He was abusive at times. But then again, there were times that he was incredibly thoughtful and generous. You know, something I talked about in my book, Disloyal. Donald Trump does things that he does generous acts but he's not a generous person. He does thoughtful acts, but he's not a thoughtful person. You know, one, one afternoon, I was just sitting with him uh, in his office. And he says, what are you doing tonight? And I said, nothing. I'm going to be with, you know, my wife and uh, I'll be home. He goes, you know, come with us. Uh, me and Melania are going to, um, who is it? Neil Young concert. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, things like that. Or bring the whole family to the U.S. Open box. Come, you know, come enjoy with me. You know, or come meet me at Bedminster. You know, we'll, um, you can go play tennis while I play golf. Then we could have lunch. He's not 24-7 this lunatic that we are seeing on a daily basis. He did do things which were very, you know, thoughtful. And so you take those thoughtful moments and you sort of, all the bad things that were happening, you sort of pat yourself on the back that Donald gave you a compliment. And it's something I see going on right now with people like Mark Meadows or, you know, any of these others, Josh Hawley's, Marjorie Taylor Greens, you know, Ted Cruz's. All of a sudden, Donald shines this light on you and that warmth makes you forget about calling, you, you know, your wife ugly or, you know, some of the other things or, or saying that your father or saying that your father, right, um, was involved in the assassination yeah. Yeah. of John F. Kennedy. 
Exactly. All right, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, we're we're going to have to be a little bit thoughtless with you because we're running up against some uh, uh, business that we have to take care of. Thank you so much for taking time with us today. The new book uh, that uh, Michael Cohen has out is called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. That is today's edition of KNX In-Depth.